So when did America begin? In one sense, you could say it began on July 4th, 1776, when the Declaration of Independence was written and signed. It really marked that point of no return moment during the American Revolution when these 13 separate colonies declared their independence together against a common enemy of Great Britain. It was their declaration that they were no longer under British rule. Or some might say it began when it became official on June 22, 1788, when the Constitution was ratified, establishing the law of the land with the U.S. Constitution. But in another sense, America began even before the Declaration or the Constitution. See, while the Declaration of Independence may have marked the, the birth of the nation or, 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 or the Constitution created this strong federal government to, to guide this young republic, there was also... In the background, long before, an invisible force at work, long before these documents were ever written. You see, prior to the mid 1700s, the colonists really saw themselves primarily as British. That's who they were. They were citizens of Great Britain. And then secondarily, they saw their, their colony, be it Virginian or New England or Pennsylvanian, as their kind of second identity. But as the tensions grew between the colonies and Great Britain, something changed. Something emerged that had not been there before. And what it was was a formation of a new identity. The American identity. One of our founding fathers, Patrick Henry, wrote this. The distinctions between Virginians, Pennsylvanians, New Yorkers, and New Englands are no more And that they are first and foremost and unquestionably Americans. Now of course there were regional differences between the different colonies. And of course it would take time for everyone to officially come on board uh, with this pursuit of independence. And it would take time for them to figure out all of the intricacies of how they would govern themselves. But Henry's point is clear. A new identity had emerged that superseded, that replaced their previous identity. See, the people were no longer British. They were no longer colonists. They had become Americans. And because of their new identity, there were necessary implications. There were things that had to happen. They could no longer submit to the tyranny of British rule. They had this new unifying principle that was so strong and powerful, it was able, uh, because of it, they could overcome their Regional differences. And because of it, they started to figure out a new way of life to live out this new identity. Now, if you're a student of history, you know that this wasn't easy. It meant changes had to take place. But one thing was certain. They could not go back to their old life as colonists. This morning, we're continuing our series in First Peter. We're calling it a sojourner's guide to hope and Really, the whole point of this letter, Peter's writing to strengthen them. These dispersed Christians all over uh, Turkey. And he's writing to remind them that they too have a new identity in Christ. Wherever they're from, wherever their background, there's a new superseding identity that replaces their old identity. And it has necessary implications on their life. In fact, throughout this letter, 
One of the ways you could trace the movement through this letter is through the different um, identity markers that Peter calls them as believers. So here's a few of them that we'll see throughout our time together. Peter calls them elect exiles, obedient children, living stones, a holy priesthood, a spiritual house, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, Christians and believers in Christ. And all of these identities are going to highlight an aspect of their new gospel reality. And right off the bat in this first verse, we looked at it last week, Peter calls believers elect exiles. We are sojourners chosen by God. Because we have a citizenship that's in heaven. This is not our home. And with this new identity comes a new way of living that needs to be consistent with their new identity. So as we walk through this passage this morning, we're going to see three different ways that elect exiles need to live. There are, there are three implications of this new gospel reality. So if you're taking notes, here's our three main movements this morning. First, elect exiles have a settled hope on future grace. It's one of the markers. Peter says chosen sojourners have this anchor of hope rooted in the finished work of Christ as they look forward to Christ's return. Elect exiles have a settled hope on future grace. And second, elect exiles have a gospel-fueled resolve for holiness. Peter says that chosen sojourners have a motivation towards godliness, not to earn something from Christ, not necessarily even to become something, but because of what Christ has already done for them and what Christ is doing in them. Elect exiles have a gospel-fueled resolve for holiness. And third, elect exiles have a regenerated love for others. Peter says that because we've been born again, there is something that has happened inside of us that should cause and, and really fuel a love for others that resembles the love of Christ. Believers, elect exiles have a regenerated, this born again love for others. So let's start together in verse 13 as we see a settled hope on future grace. Peter writes, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now keep those words on the screen. What's that first word there? Therefore, okay, good, we've got some readers in the crowd. Therefore, first word. Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? It's an important word. Because it's one of those words that, uh, as you're reading the Bible, will help you trace an author's argument. So this word therefore, it builds on a previous argument and then comes to a conclusion about that argument. And so last week, everything that, that Pastor Kevin said, uh, uh, Peter's saying, now based on that, therefore, and then he's got these implications. See, a foundation's been laid, and now what's going to come in this section are the implications of that foundation. So in this case, it goes back to that plot summary of redemption that we get in verses 3 through 9. In verses 3 through 9, Peter says, here is God's plan of redemption. In those six verses, you get the whole story of God's redemption right there. And he's about to give some imperatives. What are imperatives? 
commands, things we must do. But this is so important. Every biblical author does this. He wants our doing, the things that we must do, to overflow from what God has already done. In other words, he wants our doing to flow from our being. God has already done something. We have a new identity and therefore we must live in accordance with that reality. Now listen, you have to get this right as a Christian. If you are a Christian here this morning, you've got to get this right. Because if you, if you reverse those, if your doing leads to being, then it, it, it's going to be all wrong. That's not a gospel-driven motivation for how to live. We do these things because God has already done something in us. He has caused us to be alive, and all of the imperatives of the gospel are saying, live in accordance with that. That's how you live by grace. Our doing, the things we do, have to flow from what God has already done. In the nerdy pastor circles I run in, we say it like this. The imperatives of the gospel must flow from the indicatives of the gospel. The imperatives flow from the indicatives. Okay, we're getting real nerdy this morning. Grammatical syntax, okay? What are indicatives? What is the indicative mood? All the teachers in here are saying, yes, let's do some grammar today. The indicative mood is used in our vocabulary. You do this every single day. You've probably already spoken in the indicative mood. The indicative mood states facts. They state realities. It gives us information about events. It's not subjective, it's objective. It's saying this has happened. It basically informs us about reality. Peter gives us the indicatives of the gospel in verses 3 through 9. He's saying this is God's plan of redemption. This is what is true. This is what has happened. God is to be praised because he's caused us to be born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And not only that, not only has God raised Jesus from the dead, he has taken that resurrection power and applied it to those of us who are in Christ so that we too are born again. The same power that raises Jesus from the dead is given to you so that you have this new birth. And you're raised to life with a living hope in the things to come. And if that weren't enough, which is amazing, God the Father has adopted us as his children so that now as his children, guess what we have? An inheritance that will never perish, never be defiled, and never fade away. And right now, it's being safeguarded in heaven by the all-encompassing, omnipotent power of God. That's not like that might happen or it could be or man, it'd be really great. That has happened. See, the gospel is primarily news. It's a reporting of what has happened. And Peter is saying that, friends, has already happened. And now there's some, some implications for our lives. There's a way that we live like that is true. You think about what's going on in Ukraine right now. Like the invasion happened, right? That was news. Like it's happened. And the people of Ukraine had to live in response to that reality. They couldn't go, well, that's not my truth. Right? You can say that all you want, but it doesn't mean that it hasn't happened. Right? 
That's what the gospel is saying. Listen, God in Christ has defeated sin. He's defeated death's hold over us. And the gospel is true just like Putin invaded Ukraine. They are, they are both true realities. And now we have to live in light of that reality. We live in light of that news. And so Peter says, because that news is true, there are some imperatives that flow from that. So here's the first one. A settled hope on future grace. Now if you look at verse 13, you're going to see that the main idea of this verse is the command, this imperative to set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed. Can we get verse 13 back up there for a minute? When you're studying the Bible... You need to find what's the main idea and then what's all the stuff that supports it. In this verse, the main idea is set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed. So now this is the second time in the first chapter that Peter speaks about hope. So what is hope? Well, in general, hope is a desire directed at an object sustained by an expectation. That's just what hope is. Hope is a desire directed at an object and it's sustained By an expectation. So here's what we do. We have this desire and we aim it at an object. That object is something that we want. We think it's going to give us a measure of satisfaction, meaning, and purpose. And then that hope is sustained. It's kept alive in the gap between fulfillment and reality by this expectation. Right? Now here's what happens. The moment, as long as we feel like that that hope for object is attainable, hope stays alive, doesn't it? It's there. But the moment we think, no, 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 I can't get that. There's no way. It's, it's now futile. The second we think that hope for desire is unattain- unattainable, what happens? Hope is extinguished. It expires. So, so for example, you might hope to get a certain job, right? So, so there's the object, that job. You have a desire to get that job. And then your hope is aimed at getting that job. And as long as... That job seems attainable. You're willing to do the work. You're willing to put in the time. You're willing to put in the sacrifice. You're willing to put in the education, the training, um, the, 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 the handshaking, whatever it takes to um, get that job. But as long, but the moment that that job seems unattainable, what happens? The hope for that begins to fade. It doesn't have to be a job. That's just one example. It could be hope for a house. It could be a financial goal. It could be uh, a spouse. It could be to have children, to be healed from a disease. It could be um, something trivial like your team winning the championship. It can range from small things to big things, from good things to trivial things. Here Peter wants us to direct our greatest hope towards the best thing, future grace. Future grace. So Peter knows that hope can act as an anchor. In fact, that's what the writer of Hebrews calls hope. He calls it a sure and steady um, anchor. In chapter 6 in Hebrews, uh, the writer is talking about how God is a promise-keeping God. And he's he's encouraging Christians to remember that. And he says, as you think about God as a promise-keeping God, he says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast. You've probably experienced that in your life, that... That, that you, you imagine this scene, right? It's a word picture. You're, you, you're, you're in this little boat and, 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 the, and the, the water around you is getting turbulent. Hope acts as an anchor. It keeps you uh, in, in one place instead of being tossed and thrown by the winds. And Peter's saying, 
set your hope, drop your anchor of hope on the grace that is to be revealed. In other words, the grace that is to come, this future grace. Now, what's that future grace that he points us to? He says, the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's just Bible speak for the second coming of Jesus Christ. Christ has come the first time. That's Christmas. That's him in the manger. And he's coming again. He says that we have received grace upon grace in Jesus Christ. And yet, guess what? There's still more grace to come. See, we have an abundance of grace in the Christian life. We've already received grace. We're receiving it now. And yet, there's more to come. Jesus will return and with him... This final deliverance that will bring an end to the tyranny of sin and suffering and death and the fullness of his kingdom. And when that happens, we will receive our inheritance as the children of God. Now, just remember who Peter is writing to. He's writing to first century Christians who are living at a time of increasing persecution. Now, at this time in history, it's probably unlikely that this persecution has become full-blown government-sanctioned martyrdom. But that said, at this time, Christianity was seen as irrelevant. It was seen as out of step with the cultural momentum. If you were a Christian at this time, you would have been ostracized. People would have thought you were weird, that your beliefs were wrong. They would have uh, faced religious discrimination. You might not get a job. But you might be passed over because you were a Christian. You would have been mocked and verbally abused. Now, does that sound like any cultural moment that you know about? It sounds a lot like the current cultural tide we're living in. Not full-blown government-sanctioned religious persecution, but just the, the ostracization of living in a society that is opposed to Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing how this document written thousands of years ago is perfect for this cultural moment? And he is writing to give them hope. And he's saying, listen, I know things are bad. And I know it looks like things are getting worse because they will be. But don't worry. There is an anchor for your soul. And it's called future grace. So that's why he's saying, listen, don't put your biggest, deepest hopes into the things of this world. Instead, set your biggest hope on the grace that is to come. What is Peter doing? He's just logically following the implications of gospel reality. He's saying, listen, if it's true that Christ has come and defeated sin, and if it's true that we have this inheritance in Christ and that, that it's unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for us, then we should probably put our hope in that thing, not these other lesser things. If we have a hope of future grace... Why would we put our hope in the perishable, defiling, fading, false hopes that this world has to offer? Wouldn't it be logically inconsistent for you then, my brother and sister, to put your hope, your greatest hope, in things that perish, fade, and often get defiled? I remember when my kids were uh, younger than they were now and we would go into like the dollar store and they'd see all these toys and they'd be like, man, I want to buy, buy all these things. And you know, in your mind, you're like, that's just like you're paying for trash. <laughs> because in about three hours, those things are going to be in the garbage pail, right? You know they don't last long. It's made of the cheapest plastic known to man. There's no metal in any of the parts. It's going to break. I mean, it may break before you get it out of the pack. It may be broken in the package. And yet there's all this hope put in this thing. 
right? That's like what we're doing when we put our hope in the perishable, fading things of this world. As I prepared for this week, I was reminded of an old Cademan's Call song on their original album called This World. The lyrics go like this. This world has nothing for me, and this world has everything. All that I could want, and nothing that I need. He's wrestling with the tension that we face every single day. In one sense, this world legitimately has nothing to offer you. Period. Nothing that can truly satisfy your deepest longings. And yet, because we live so nearsightedly, we forget who we are. And we think, no, 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 this world has everything. See, we're hardwired for hope, friends. We don't get a choice if we're going to be a people of hope. You don't get that choice. The way God made you, creator of everyone and everything, you are made for hope. The question is, what are you going to put your hope in? That's the choice you and I get to have. So Peter says, set your hope fully on future grace. And here's why I love the Bible. Because the biblical hope is categorically different than uh, the hope of this world. See, biblical hope is set on a future grace, but it's guaranteed by something that's already happened in the past, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Christian hope isn't mere wishful thinking. It's not like a dream, like I I wish this could be true. It's actually an assurance, a confidence, an anchor that God is a promise-keeping God. So when Jesus says, I am coming again, he means it. So that's a hope that you can drop your anchor on. So how do we do that? Peter says two things. This is that supporting part of that verse. He says, prepare your minds for action and be sober-minded. The first one, prepare your minds for action. If you look in your Bible, you have a little footnote and it goes down and tells you what the Greek expression is literally translated. It means, gird up the loins of your mind. Now the reason the translators put it down there is because nobody knows what that means. See, people, because no one in this culture wears long clothing like that. They typically wore loose garments that went down to their ankles. And so if you were getting ready for action or or ready for some kind of work, you would need to gather up all of that extra fabric, tuck it into your belt so you'd be more free to move. Maybe a similar modern expression would be roll up your sleeves. So if I were going to go out and garden today, I would roll up these sleeves so I don't get dirt all over them. Peter's saying, be prepared, be ready. As you face trials and suffering, you need to make a conscious, deliberate act of faith to trust in the promises of God. It takes a determined resolve to be disciplined in your thinking. In other words, one of the hopes that we have at Seven Miles is that we would fill you with such good theology that your tank would be full so that in the days of suffering, when, when, when it gets elevated, you've got this deep tank of good theology stored up. Your mind is already prepared for action. Good theology stored up for the day of sorrow. And then he says, be sober-minded. This is another word picture. He's full of them. In the same way that alcohol can uh, inhibit your perception and your ability to make wise choices, Peter says, don't get drunk on the priorities and false promises of this world. Be sober-minded. See, the priorities of this world, the promises that it can offer you, can make you drunk, Christianly speaking. He's saying, instead, be clear and focused on who God is and all that he has done for us. Luis Sanchez writes, we are to prepare our minds for action 
by not imbibing, that means drinking, the patterns and philosophies of this world that inebriate our minds, that make our minds dull and provoke us to do things that are contrary to God's revealed will. So here is Peter's first point. Elect exiles live with a settled hope on future grace. Now let's look at verse 14 to see his second point. That elect exiles have a gospel-fueled resolve for holiness. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So it's now as we begin to unpack all of this, there's the, fir- there's the main command in this section. The main driving force is found in verse 15. It's when Peter says, be holy in all your conduct. That's the main command and everything else is supporting. That's the imperative Peter wants us to uh, begin to live out as a uh, uh, flowing from this new identity that we have in Christ. Now here's what's fascinating about this command. Peter isn't merely saying, hey, be better, do better. You guys are terrible at living, do better. That's not what be holy because I am holy means. That's not holiness or sanctification as the Bible teaches. He's saying, listen, you actually already are holy in one sense. Now, he's not denying that you have sin in your life. What he's saying is you've already been set apart. Because of your relationship with God, because you've been joined to Christ, there's actually an objective, definitive reality to your holiness. There's a past tense reality to your holiness because you've been set apart. That's why uh, you see biblical writers speaking to Christians, though they're, they still have sin as saints. They've been set apart. God has washed us, cleansed us, and set us apart unto himself. Peter's already said this in verse 2. He said, we're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. And what? The sanctification of the Spirit. We have been set apart. So what Peter is basically saying is, You need to demonstrate that reality in how you behave. You've been set apart. So as one who's been set apart, live in accordance with that reality. Or another way to say it is live holy because you actually already are holy. Now you might be tempted to think that's just pastoral semantics there. But that couldn't be further from the truth. If the Bible were just to say, hey, be better, do better. That's that's more in line with 21st century self-help talk. That's saying, look, look inside, find some internal, self-derived motivation to do something different. Andy has a uh, Peloton subscription. And so from time to time, I hear uh, the gospel according to Peloton in the basement. And I'm telling you right now, look, look, first of all, great workout program, nothing against it, right? I bought the bike, I'm in. But it... (laughs) It is the worst self-help gospel I have heard. Everything is about you are awesome. You just need to find that awesomeness inside of you. It's there. Friends, it is not there. Okay? That is not the gospel. Sanctification, according to the Bible, says God has washed you. God has cleansed you. God has given you a new spirit. God is the one at work in you. That's what's true of you. That's who you are. And now he says live in accordance with that reality. Barry Cooper in his podcast Simply Put says this. There are, and he's kind of riffing on John Owen, but John Owen's very difficult to read. 
So he's kind of summarizing him, bringing John Owen to us. Okay, he says this. There are two great pastoral problems. So as a pastor, here's the hardest things we face. One is to convince committed sinners that sin does have control over them. Okay, so that's someone who's uh, not a believer and trying to tell them, listen, you're being ruled, you're enslaved to sin. And here's the other one. This is the one I want to focus on. The other is to convince Christians that sin does not have control over them. If you are a believer in Christ, look at me. You can say no to sin. You can. Now, I'm not betting my bank account that you always will. But what I'm telling you is sin is not your master anymore. You've actually been set free from the bondage and slavery to sin. So don't go back to your old slave master and give up the freedom that Christ has won for you. You really can say no to sin as you say yes to Christ. Look at me. Don't believe the lie that you are enslaved to sin. Whatever that besetting sin is in your life. And if you're like me, you've got your list. Whatever it is, listen, it does not own you. It doesn't. You really can say no. You've been redeemed. You have been bought back with the precious blood of Christ. But not only are we to live holy because we've been made holy, Peter says we're to live holy because God is holy. Do you notice the second part of that? Peter says, for it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Any, anyone fans of Leviticus in here? Okay, just me. Mandy. This is the theme verse in Leviticus. It comes up all the time. He gives all these laws and he said, be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. Be holy because I am holy. It comes up over and over and over again in the book. Be holy. Why? Because the Lord is holy. Now listen, under the old covenant, God's people were set apart from every other nation that they would be distinctive, that it would be clear to all those around them that they served the one true God. So their diet was different, clothing was different, ethics, relationships, civil laws, worship, all of it. Everything about their life was different and distinct. What's the point of all that? The point is that how they conducted their everyday life revealed to whom they were dedicated to. So people around them would say, man, everything about your life is different. And they would go, that's because we worship the one true God. And Peter says the same is true of us today. Now the difference is we're under the new covenant, not the old covenant. In the new covenant, we've been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're sanctified and set apart by the Holy Spirit. So instead of being marked by different diet and temple worship, we're marked by obedience to Jesus. We already saw that in verse 2. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. Now how do we do that? Peter says, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. This is the negative counterpart to the positive, be holy for I am holy. And if you remember that from Romans 12 when we went through that uh, a while back, then you're correct. It's, it, it's very similar to what Paul said in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Peter and Paul, not Mary, are both saying, 
the trend will be, there'll be this temptation to conform to the former ways. To go back to this old way of living. To, to, to go back to old habits. Before Christ, we lived in sin. To, and, and we were ignorant of the truth and goodness and beauty of Christ. And he's saying, now that we've been made alive, we're set free. Now that we know the truth, for the Christian, we can't go back. We can't be conformed to our former passions, which means we must be conformed to a new way of life. Now that makes sense, right? Because that's what holiness is. That's what being sanctified means. It means to be set apart. It means you're leaving one thing to be devoted to another. So what Peter is saying is you, you can't be devoted to God while at the same time being devoted to your former life. You can't live with one foot in both sides. Being set apart means leaving one life and clinging to another. If we're going to be holy, we have to resist the temptation to fall back into our old passions of self, uh, self-gratification, instant gratification, selfishness, self-glorification. And we need to be devoted to, uh, to cultivating holy living. That takes an intentionality, doesn't it? Then he goes on in verse 17. He says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So Peter's saying, during this sojourning, during this exile, here's another identity marker as you grow in holiness. He says, remember that you should be living as obedient children because God is your father. And then he says that the father will judge impartially according to each one's deeds. Did you know God has the right and responsibility to judge us? That's his place as the the maker and sustainer of everything. He's the only one who can judge justly and establish justice. It's one of the prerogatives of being God. And Peter mentions this reality That God is going to judge us justly. And it's supposed to be this motivation of this appropriate response of the fear of God. Now, if you read your Bible, you'll see the fear of the Lord show up over and over. Particularly in the wisdom literature, Psalms and Proverbs. Remember um, a couple years ago, we went through the first half of the book of Proverbs. This summer, we're going to go through the rest of the book of Proverbs. And you're going to see this theme of the fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord, here's how we defined it back then means that God is your highest priority, your deepest love, and your foundational trust. In other words, God has your highest attention, your highest affection, and your greatest allegiance. That's what it means to fear the Lord. It means that one day you recognize that God who sees all and knows all, that one day we will stand before him and give an account for how we have lived. And Peter tells us that God will do so without impartiality. So he's not, he can't be bought, he can't be bribed. He's not going to consider your rank or your status or your ethnicity or your family origin. He's going to judge each one of us according to how we've lived. There's no preferential treatment because he's a just God. Now listen, here's the hard part of what I've got to say today. For those who are apart from Christ, for those who have not put their faith in him, that day when you stand before God, It will be terrifying. And I just love you enough to tell you hard things. That day will be a terrifying 
reality because you, all you're going to have as you stand before him is your sin and like a handful of good deeds. And I promise you those won't be enough. It's just not. It'll never appease the just wrath of God. That's all you'll have. And you'll be found wanting. But for those in Christ, you will stand before the throne of God's judgment with your sin fully exposed. And yet at the same time, you will be covered and protected by the blood of Christ. Christ will be your advocate on that day. And his righteousness will be the ground on which you stand. All your sin has been paid for. All your sin has been atoned, which means the wrath of God is atoned. And like Paul says in Romans 8, there will be therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet, the Bible frequently reminds believers, though our sin has been paid for, that we will stand before the judgment seat of God and give an account. Now Christians ask all the time, well, how does that all work out? How will it be that I'll stand there with my sin atoned for, with no condemnation, and yet at the same time give an account for my life? Here's the deal. How that plays out in full detail, the Bible doesn't give us a play-by-play on that. So there's some mystery there, but here's what I know. Here's what I know. Peter says that it's true, and we should live with the end in mind, and that should be part of the motivation driving us towards holy living. So on that day when you stand before the judgment seat of God, your only boast will be Christ. I promise you're not going to look back on anything you've done and go, well, Jesus plus that one good deed I did was awesome. No, no. You're going to go, all I have is Christ. That's it. At the same time, as long as we live today, we are called to strive towards holiness with that day in mind. Because nothing is done under the sun that God does not see. And so Peter says, Live like that. Live like that. We're to live in this tension and not commit either of these two errors when it comes to the judgment day. Number one, to trivialize God and treat him lightly. Right? Don't we do that sometimes? We go, listen, God's going to forgive me. God's like grandpa. He can't get mad at me. He's already, he's already been a parent. He's got lollipops in his back pocket. That's trivializing the maker of heaven and earth to whom we will all give an account. God is not ever pictured in scripture just like a good old time grandpa. But at the same time, we can't commit the other fear to live in constant fear that says, how do I know that I'm saved? For the believer, we don't commit either of those errors. We live knowing that we have an assurance of salvation. For those who are in Christ, there is really no condemnation. And yet at the same time, Let's take God's law seriously. Let's not abuse the grace that he's given to us by believing the lie that our holiness doesn't matter. In verses 18 to 21, Peter gives the motivation that's ultimately supposed to drive our holiness. Verse 18, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead 
gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. It's another articulation of the gospel. It's like Peter can't contain himself. This one has a lot of Exodus and Passover imagery. Peter says, Christian, remember what Christ has done for you. This is what's supposed to fuel your holiness. You were enslaved to sin and death. You were idolaters just like your parents, and yet God looked on you with compassion. He sent a deliverer to pay the ransom. And he didn't purchase your freedom with lesser things like gold or silver, but he purchased you your salvation, your redemption with the precious blood of Christ, our perfect spotless Passover lamb. He was set apart just like the Passover lambs before the foundation of the world. Before there was time, Christ was appointed to live for us, die for us, conquer death for us so that we could put our hope and faith in God. And at the end of the day, Peter says, be holy. Put away the former passions of your life. Strive towards holiness. Live with that end in mind and do so motivated by what Jesus gave up for you. Strive for holiness because Jesus is worth it. Consider all that he's done. And let that be the motivation for your obedience. Friends, elect exiles live with a settled hope on future grace. They have a gospel-fueled resolve for holiness. And finally, elect exiles have a regenerated love for others. Verse 22, having purified your soul by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another from a pure heart. The last imperative in this section is love one another earnestly. This makes sense, right? Peter moves from how to live in right relationship with God to how to live in right relationship with one another in Christian community. And where did Peter learn that? From Jesus. He was his disciple. Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, right? Love God, love others. Peter is basically distilling that Christian truth. The Christian life cannot be lived in isolation Commentator Karen Jobes writes this. She says, To be chosen by God and to be set apart by the Spirit for the purpose of participating in the covenant in Christ means necessarily coming into relationship with others who are also chosen. You see what she's saying? You've been chosen by God. You've been set apart by God. And guess what? There are others here too. And it matters how we live with one another. Because we're born again, because we're united to Jesus, and because we're adopted into a family, we have this holy obligation to love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. This is not optional. You don't get to go, I'm not good at loving people, so I'm just going to check out on that one. This love is not optional, and it's to be of the kind of quality that it can rightly be said to be Christ-like. We're to love one another earnestly. That means with vigor, with intentionality. We're to do so, Peter says, out of pure motivation, not trying to gain something in return. We're simply to love because we have been so loved. So listen to me. That means resolving conflict in the family of God is not optional. Extending forgiveness to your Christian brother or sister is not optional. Serving one another is not optional. Giving to one another in need is not optional. Being patient with one another is not optional. Being proactive with your love, meaning you're looking for ways to extend love. That is not optional for the Christian. We are to love one another with the same kind of love that Jesus loved us. And then Peter gives us the reason why we're to love one another like this. Verse 23. 
since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. In other words, Peter says, love one another because you've been reborn with a new birth that generates spiritual life from the imperishable seed, the word of God. So let me break that down for you. Let's follow Peter's logic. He's saying, the only way that a person can love one another with the love of Christ, with this distinctly Christian love, is to be reborn. That kind of pure, spiritual, God-given love is only possible if a person is born again. Now, he's not saying that unregenerate people can't be loving in, in that kind of way or kind or generous. What he's saying is the kind of love that is distinctly Christ-like, this purest form of love, only comes when a person has been born again and they have the love of God flowing from them. See, in the same way that when you plant a seed and it germinates and sprouts, something grows from that seed, Peter's saying the imperishable word of God has been sown into you and it is now uh, producing life in you so that you can love other people. That's the logic here. When the word of God comes alive in your heart, it produces this kind of love. And then the last couple of verses, he says, All flesh is like grass and its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter's giving a, an imagery here of springtime in Palestine. What would happen is in the spring, flowers, wildflowers would pop up, but they would quickly fade with the hot sun and the scorching, relentless winds. He's quoting from Isaiah here, and he says, we're kind of like that. Our lives like springtime flowers, here one minute and gone the next. But the word of God is not like that. It remains forever. And this, is the, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. So what he's saying is this. When the word of God, when the gospel was preached to you, and you received it, and it settled into the soil of your heart, and it began to germinate and sprout, it carried with it a spirit-given power that caused your soul to undergo a transformation that can be only be described as new birth. And that rebirth makes it possible for you to love others like Jesus. That's what Peter is basically saying. Now, Peter had experienced this firsthand. Do you know Peter preached the first Christian sermon ever? You can hear about that. You can read about that in Acts. And what Peter and the early apostles found was that when they preached the gospel, when they told people about Jesus, something happened. It wasn't simply that people became interested. It wasn't that, 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 that people were kind of curious. It was that when they preached the gospel, those words had a power bigger than themselves. N.T. Wright says it like this. He's speaking about when they preached the gospel. It was as though... When the word was spoken, something like a blood transfusion was taking place in at least some of the hearers. They found themselves gripped by it, transformed by it, rinsed out by it, given a new sense of the presence of God. Yes, hearing the word, they tasted that the Lord is gracious and that they'd been born again. Friends, that is the power of the word of God. When it goes forth. When it falls into the, the soil of our hearts, it causes rebirth. And from that rebirth comes this ability to love others like Jesus. Friends, we are elect exiles. We are sojourners chosen by God. Living out our days in a world that is not our own. 
And because the gospel is true, there are logical, necessary implications of how we live. Peter's given us three of them. We're to live with a settled hope on future grace. We are to live with a gospel-fueled resolve for holiness. And we are to live with a regenerated love for others. My prayer is that as we consider these truths this week, we would think about them. We would revisit them. We'd come back to this text and ask, how can we implement these implications into the everyday stuff of our lives? Let's pray.